Welcome back, everyone, to the OGs. I'm Don Povia, joined by Kyle Bunch. Kyle, coming off of the great Snowman Massacre, Austin, Texas, 2021. How'd the kids take the uh, the melting away of their little snowy friend? Uh, so apparently still there. Exciting, excited to note that it's still there. My wife just texted me that it looks like the snowman has a small penis. So that's where <laughs> we're at in terms of the status of the great Austin Snowman of 2021. So hanging in there. Literally. Okay. Got a, yeah. Got a little more time. The kids, uh, kids can enjoy the company a little bit. Uh, uh, yeah, a little anatomy lesson for them in, in ice form. It's great. It's great. <laughs> nice. what we needed. Make up Beautiful. Well, you know, great show last week with Lang Whitaker and Lang talked quite a bit about his transition from, uh, all, weekly newspapers, uh, to slam magazine and then to GQ. And we talked about, a lot of the legacy of our blogging friends at GQ. And one of the guys I feel responsible for that and bringing a lot of people over and recognizing some of the talent in that non-traditional space is our guest this week, Corey Wilson. Corey spent 14 years with Condé Nast in various roles uh, with various publications within the company. Um, but we knew him from the GQ days. He was instrumental in our very first after party, which really set the trend, Kyle. Um, you know, for the infamous parties that we threw around these things. So Corey Wilson, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thanks for, for starting that trend. And we can talk a little bit about where that led over the years, but uh, welcome, Corey. How are you? Good. Thanks guys for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, going back in time and reminiscing about uh, the early days of Blogs of Balls. Yeah, we talk about that fuzziness before you hopped on of of the timeline, but also like what we did, when we did. And you just mentioned we were going around looking for venues for this party. And we'll talk about that, um, you know, with, with Rich Gallagher, we mentioned from Diageo. Um, but I don't know how we hooked up. I don't know why we hooked up. I believe it was you that had reached out to us. But, you know, why would GQ and Condé Nast want to get involved with a first time event called Blogs with Balls? I, I think I probably was pitching you at HHR, to be honest. I mean, if memory serves me right, I mean, that that sort of like this, that's what I was sort of charged with at GQ at the time. I was a junior publicist. And you know, both in the sports space and the fashion space, there was, you know, it was the early days of blogging and, um, you know, there are actually a lot of similarities in the two, but, um, you know, there were guys that I, that I were pitching and I think that we started off a conversation that way. Um, and it kind of went from there. That probably sounds about right because I remember going back to every PR person that ever pitched me and trying to say, you know, here's your chance. We're all going to be in one spot, uh, make some connections and meet face to face. And you and Rich were probably the only two that took advantage of that first time around. So, you know, thank you for that. Um, I guess the other part is, um, you know, why an event like that, uh, what was GQ looking to accomplish by putting a footprint on it? So I think, I mean, again, like this is like fuzzy, but I'm pretty sure that, that it coincided with sort of the rebranding relaunch of GQ.com. Um, at the time, GQ was sharing a website with details called men.style.com. Um, and I think that, you know, when you and I talked, I was, you know, I just seemed like it could be an opportunity for me to get in front of a bunch of sports bloggers, sports writers, um, and do some networking, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I also thought it was good brand association for GQ as we were launching GQ.com and trying to build out like more of a sports presence, um, again, to have that sort of 
alignment. Um, and I'm pretty sure like that's how I was able to get budget for it was like, you know, tying it to the relaunch of GQ.com, which at the time, you know, we were trying to figure out what it would look like. And I know that, you know, initial conversations were like, it's just a younger, you know, version of GQ. It's going to be able to go deeper on all these various, you know, things that we cover in the magazine. Um, and sports was, you know, certainly one of those things. Yeah. Talk about evolution. There was the evolution of the industry, but also the evolution of, of GQ. And was that a design move to separate you from say a details or an Esquire going from fashion focus, fashion first to more of a men's lifestyle type brand? I mean, again, like I'm, you know, was the PR guy. So I wasn't behind editorial decisions. Um, certainly, you know, as I was there longer, you know, I was more involved with, with stuff like that. Um, but at that time, I mean, um, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, Jim Nelson, who was the editor in chief at the time, um, was a great general interest magazine editor. I mean, if you look at what GQ was at that time, I mean, it was, you know, known for its feature while reporting and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, sports was an area I think that he saw as an opportunity. And then, you know, obviously a few years down the road, you've got the, the NBA suit stuff and all that coming back. And then like, you know, obviously there's like a great, um, alignment now between, you know, GQ and the NBA. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, at the time, um, I think it was just sort of like, it, it, it was an opportunity, right. To expand the audience and expand the audience online. You talked about some of that, the, the similarities of those early days of blogging on the fashion side, on the, the sports side, and uh, interested to kind of go back to that and what you've seen. I mean, I feel like some of it felt like all things lifestyle just have sort of collided in, in a lot of ways in a lot of places, but, but talk about how you've seen, how you saw that change or what that felt like in the early days. And some of those, yeah. I mean, you know, what was, what was, what was cool. I will say like, I mean, it was a small PR team that I was on. It was th three or four people. Um, and, you know, I was looking to carve out sort of what was my niche going to be. Um, and, and I thought, you know, at, G, at the time GQ.com was maybe there was like a site editor and maybe like, this is before social media. So there was, you know, there was, he had an assistant. Um, and then I was sort of the publicist for GQ.com. Um, and my boss was handling a lot of the, the magazine feature stuff. So, you know, again, it was just really trying to like, what are the things that I'm interested in as a 27 year old guy? Um, and like, what would I like to see us cover more of? And, you know, that kind of stuff, like we were coming up with, you know, ideas for what we could be covering. Um, and certainly sports and, and fashion, you know, fashion, obviously in the GQ's DNA. And at the time, I mean, you had a lot of these blogs, you know, I, I would say like, they were almost like the equivalent of, a, of like HHR and like what Matt Uffer was doing on the fashion side with like a continuous lean and Mr. Mort and like, you know, some of these guys who are like the OGs of like men's fashion style and blogging. And, you know, you've seen they've, their trajectory is, you know, I, I think very similar and that they've gone on to do really, you know, cool and interesting things. Um, so at the time, I mean, I was just cold calling you guys, you know, like, Hey, like we've got this story, you know, like wanting to see it with your site. Um, and um, yeah. And I mean, just started to build relationships from there. Um, so again, I saw like, when you approached me with like blogs with balls, I was like, if anything, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to, to have all of these people in one place. And for me, and that's how I pitched it to my editors was like, bring you guys. And like, you make a ton of, you know, contacts too. It's like, these are potential writers for the site. So, you know, it's good for me. It's good for you guys. And that's how we, you know, pitched it to, uh, 
Jim Nelson, and he agreed to help sponsor it. It's still surprising to me that back then, uh, NPR, there was that separation between traditional pitching and digital pitching, pitching bloggers. And what you just described is just PR 101, as I'm sure you can articulate relationships and, and making these contacts and having these folks that you can go to. But I feel like back then, the you know, I was HHR, I wasn't Don Povia. <laughs> you didn't know who I was, that there were people behind that. So recognizing um, the value of you know of this emerging media, uh, you know, it's a testament to you. But as you said, as looking at it as a consumer, as a 27-year-old guy that is in that target demographic that your magazine has. It's also a testament to Jim and the, and the leadership team of, you know, kind of respecting your point of view and allowing you to, to reach out like that. Well, and I think it speaks to like, you know, you, you want to surround yourself with people that, you know, you value, but also it's like you want to have different points of view from all over the organization. And, and he was very good, you know, about that. But I also made it, a, you know, a good case for it, right? Like, I mean, it was a I can't remember how, you know, what, what like the cost was, but it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, it made sense. It was like, it wasn't I a think lot you of- covered the bar tab at Foley's I mean, yeah, rest I, in I, peace. Cause man, I miss Foley's a lot, but I think that you know, was, so that was, was pretty much it where it was like, you know, it was kind of a no brainer, you know, from like, uh, from a PR and an editorial standpoint is they're trying to grow that, that footprint. Well, I think on the PR side, you, you certainly saw value in that. And then, as the the talent acquisition came up, um, were they looking for writers in general, or were they looking for writers with uh, propensity for digital blogging content, etc.? You know, I mean, like the magazine world, uh, a lot of the, you know, like I would say most of the publications use freelancers and stringers. You know what I mean? So it's like these aren't like contracted guys; these are like contributors, you know, and you want to, uh, um, find, you know, you know, they're always looking for talent in interesting places. So like, that's how I took it. You know, it's like, as we're starting to grow our sports content, let's find fresh voices. You know, who are the people that people are reading elsewhere? And like, can they bring that audience with them to a site that's, you know, it's a brand that's really big, but a site that's not very big. Going back to the conversation we had with Lang talking about Slam Magazine, how he was brought on, really started that online platform for them with really no strategy behind it. Um, the question that I had was, was the digital Slam Online brought in to support Slam the Magazine, vice versa? Were they, uh, you know, did they, did they work well together? Um, so back then, as you're, again, rebranding, coming on to a new platform, uh, moving yourself away from these other brands that really be GQ proper, um, was the online side of it looked at as complementary to the magazine? Were you still looking at how do we up subscriptions and circulation? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, certainly it was still like, you know, you're trying trying to drive print subscriptions, which is, you know, interesting because now it's like come full circle and that is, you know, sort of the new business model. That's why you're on because we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, taking, you know, like supplementing the loss in advertising. Um, but, um, but yeah, at the time, I think it was, it was like something that we knew we needed, but wasn't, you know, weren't quite sure like why, but it was like, it was something that, you know, we were just like, um, it was a new way to discover the, the magazine and to, you know, drive subscriptions basically. Um, but, um, what I was what I was thinking about is like, uh, you know, when we were relaunching GQ.com, I mean, it was, in terms of it being complimentary, yes, it was complimentary, but it was also, um, 
it had its own identity. Like we were trying to identify what that was. And it was, uh, we came to the agreement. It was sort of like, it's a younger version of GQ. What does that look like? I mean, it was a different logo. You know, there's different treatments. We did different parties around it. We did like a, uh, um, we did a party at like a DNC convention in Austin with, uh, at Lambert's with HuffPo. You know, it was like, we were trying all these different things um, um, to kind of like figure out what that identity is. Um, did it work? I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's, well, let's look short term, short term. Did it work? Short term. Did it work? Um, I mean, I don't even know like what the KPIs were back then, you know, like, honestly, it was like traffic. Sure. But like that, again, it was such early days that like, um, I think it was just, you know, it was like you said, it was meant to compliment. And, Um, and looking at it from that, I mean, GQ and, and, you know, I think just you were, you were there at, at various properties over a really interesting time in terms of how did you see the culture in those organizations change and at those publications change as more of the writing pool did come up from the internet did like the, you know, is that, as that more of the audience and the influence was about how far a story was traveling there versus subscribers. And maybe I'm over overstating that, but I'm just curious, you know, some of the, if the bloggers in that basement that you bought drinks for were some of the like disruptors and insurgents, what impact beyond, you know, individual articles maybe did, did some of that wave have that you saw from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think again, it like comes back to sort of like always reinventing, right. Like reinventing the brand, like, and that was my job as a PR person was like, I wanted to position it in a different way. So like, I felt like when I came on board, it was known as a fashion title. I wanted to expand upon that. Right. And like, part of that was, you know, doing things like blogs with balls. But part of that, we're like putting our editors on the Today Show to talk about things, to reach a, a broader audience. Um, and also to like identify, oh, well, what are the, who are the guys that we want to reach? And like, how do we necessarily want to reach them? And it's like, um, you know, we want to be known as like a, I, I thought like a one-stop shop for guys. So like very general interest. So it's like, we're checking a lot of boxes. It's sports and it's fashion and it's, you know, it's news you can use. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's politics. Um, so we would, you know, we would do parties like we did with HuffPo and it was just like sort of, um, I think we were, you know, the brands were sort of using each other. And and that's the thing is like BWB was not a known entity, but at the time, you know, like um, we were, you guys were tapping into a bunch of guys that were doing what you were doing, Don. And, and as a young guy who was reading those sites, like I saw the value in that, like I knew that people were going to those sites right now, a general GQ audience might not, but I saw that as like, a valuable brand association. Um, and as you guys did too. At what point did you move from, from GQ over to Wired Pitchfork? So, so I was at GQ from 2007 to 2014. Um, and then uh, moved over to Wired. Um, and again, the remit was similar um, in that like, it was how do I take Wired from being sort of known as this tech Bible to reaching a broader audience. And the editor-in-chief at that time was Scott Dadich. And, uh, you know, he was very interested in making Wired, uh, you know, more general interest. Like he didn't want it to be seen necessarily as a tech magazine. It was, um, tech was, you know, sort of the undercurrent that ran through everything uh, on the on the site and in the magazine. Um, but he wanted it to also be more general interest. You know, there were celebrities on the covers. There were, you know, um, profiles that went into the culture of technology and not just focused on sort of like the business and, and Silicon Valley. So my curiosity with that was 
we when we talked to Lang and talked to some of these other folks, talked to Jamie Mottram, you know, we felt, you know, like last week, hey, the NBA was really on the forefront of recognizing sneaker culture and esports and, and kind of jumping on on board that. Um, when you saw the folks in the communities and the people that you're trying to reach, was there a contrast, a difference between say the tech audience and, and say the sports audience? Yeah, I mean, for sure. But like, you know, again, as like a, you know, I, I fancy myself as like a PR guy, but like a general interest guy. So it was like, you know, I'm not an authority on fashion. I'm not an authority on sports. Or I'm not an authority on tech, but like, I liked to, what I was trying to do is take whatever we were doing and reach a larger audience with it. So like I said before, with, you know, whether that's putting someone on a national TV show and explaining to a producer at that show why they need to talk about what we're talking about in our magazine, you know, saw myself as very much like a, you know, a middleman. And Corey was certainly part of, of our growth as well, being there at the first one on the ground level, going out to Vegas, right? Here's, here's our BWB Vegas uh, commemorative here. Um, you know, we, we say that was a little more corporate, a little more structured, but, you know, we certainly saw growth. And then one of the things that we did with you guys, we did uh, NBA or NFL draft party with the NFLPA at Google. So it was Google, Blogs with Balls, GQ, and the NFLPA. Well, you know, one of these things doesn't belong. And then the other thing we did when we were at Bloomberg, again, that here we are, we must be doing something right because we're at Bloomberg headquarters. Um, you know, we were brought in and, and I think collaboratively really with GQ, with with me and Chris and Kyle, and then with Van Heusen doing a big activation there that we did with with Deion Sanders. So it, it was nice to have Corey not only recognize that and become a part of it, but kind of grow with us as we grow, as we grew. Um, so as a guy that coming out of college, I mean, did you see yourself as a, as a PR flack? Uh, I, I see that, you know, you were a Chicago Tribune reporter. Um, you know, what was, what was your goal coming out of school? What did you want to do? I mean, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I mean, that wasn't the goal in college. In college, it was like, I was a history and English major. I went to University of Illinois, um, which basketball team's back this year. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, my senior year, my fifth, my fifth senior year, I, uh, I started writing at the, at the daily Illini and for like the alternative news weekly there and, um, the buzz and, you know, kind of like thought I could, you know, maybe make a go of it that way. And, and when I graduated, um, I was able to get a job as a, like a Metro beat reporter at the Chicago Tribune. So writing sort of non byline, like, you know, blurbs in the Metro section. And it was an unbelievable experience. Um, it was, uh, you know, I worked the night shift and was going to crime scenes and was, um, you know, following Mayor Daly around to press briefings and stuff like that. And so it was just an invaluable experience in terms of just um, sort of like what makes a story, like the, like the bare bones of like, what are the elements to making a story? Um, but you know, ultimately I realized like, man, it's going to be a slog to like actually get to like write features for a newspaper and I'd have to probably leave Chicago. And then eventually maybe I'd come back at some point. And a friend was like, you should, uh, like try PR. And I was like, what's PR, you know? And he's like, yeah, hey, you get to write press releases. You go work for an agency. So i you know, sent my resume around and ended up getting a internship at Edelman. Um, started there and, you know, consumer brand stuff. And um, one of the few guys uh, working there at the time 
and immediately was put on all these like men's accounts. So I was working on Burger King and I was working on MTD lawnmowers and I was working on, you know, Captain Morgan rum and did like a Captain Morgan for president campaign and all this stuff. And it was just, it was a really, really fun experience. And I mean, it clicked, it was just like, you know, it was pop culture, it was news, it was, um, you know, it was, it was very creative. Um, so I spent, uh, a few years at Edelman and then, um, yeah, my, my girlfriend at the time, uh, my wife now moved to New York for a job. Um, and I followed her out there and looked for a job for a couple of weeks and got a, a job at GQ. Um, and you know, it was like, I wanted to work at GQ, like, but I thought it would be, you know, like as a journalist and the fact that I, I felt like I was kind of coming in the back door as a publicist. Um, but it was, it was great. Like to do PR for journalists, like it was great, you know? Um, and to be, have a seat at the table sort of right away to kind of help influence events and how we were going to position the brand and all that. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was awesome. Yeah. So you're the, I think the second one this week that whose, whose wife dragged them to New York and, uh, the rest was history. So, uh, I, I did it the other way with mine, but you know, <laughs> New York draws us all in one way or another. Um, so you you basically got in there right as a lot of this change was kind of as they were going through. Did you, I mean obviously just a, the critical inflection point from a digital standpoint? Yeah, I mean kind of like yeah, really bridged sort of the two eras, you know. Um, and I think that that I think it helped me as a PR person because I felt like I had tools from sort of you know like I was there as things were developing, so I was you know there as Instagram was happening and all you know sort of sort of like. And, you know, usually with, um, I can remember like speaking to a journalism class and them asking me about stuff and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, man, that is like, there's, they can't keep up with the change. It's happening so fast. So they're preparing for things that like when they come out of school, it's going to be irrelevant. You know, it's just like, unless you're interning or you're working in the environment as it's happening, you're, you're already behind. Um, so I felt like, you know, it was. That, and it stayed it's exciting. It never got stagnant. It was there was just so much constant change in the time that I was there um, that I felt you know it was it was very valuable to, to sort of be on both sides of it. I think maybe it was the first. I listened to a few of the podcasts earlier this week. And you guys were talking about like just sort of like our age and being sort of like kind of like either are we you know are we Gen X or you know whatever. But like. Um, and, and sort of having, you know, like, you remember what a cassette tape is, but you, you know, like, but, but, but you, but you, you've used MB3s, you know, or like, I feel like it's the same thing with like PR. It's like, I was sort of on both sides of it. So I applied a lot of what I learned from my boss, which is a guy, you know, was a guy who long launches, went to the, you know, play at five o'clock every night, you know, like, I mean, he was super old school and it was all about relationships and like, I try to, you know, tell, you know, my young team that too. It's just like, you got to get on the phone and you got to go out and meet people. If you just send press releases, you know, BCC to a hundred people, you're going to get those kind of results. Like you need to actually develop relationships so that when you call a reporter or you call a, a producer, they know that you're calling them because you've got good information. You know, it's just, you can't like it, the relationships is, are so important. And so like, I just applied that to, you know, you guys, bloggers, like the, you were my contacts in the same way that like my boss's contacts were the media reporter at the New York Times. As you got older and you're your age now and you have younger staff that are coming on, how much were you still beating that drum to them who 
maybe you're just used to communicating with people via DM on, on Instagram. But that, I will say though, that's the thing though, as long as that's what you're doing and you have a relationship, even if it's, if it's DMing them, it's like, I don't care if it's actually on the phone, but like, what I mean is like, you have to know who you're talking to, like find out about the person, read what they've written. You know, <laughs> your homework. Yeah. I, I always had the joke too, is, is when I first got into a PR agency, you know, sight unseen as the blogger that was in there to pitch bloggers. It was, Hey, write a pitch or, you know, let's see your pitch. I said, for what? Like, who do you want to get? Let me, let me give this guy a call. Uh, And that's the story I I always go back to, but you know, it seems to be the recurring theme that we had regardless of if you're on the, you know, guy looking for a job as a writer, as a freelancer, or on the PR side with you, with Patrick Wickstead talked a lot about this uh, on when he was on the show. It's, you know, is, is being personable and being a person. This is, this is the type of, you know, really society that we live in. And it seems so simple, but yet you have to put the work into it. And going back to like, you know, that first event, I was like, I mean, this is ideal because they're all in one place. I can get so much done in two hours, you know, if I don't drink. <laughs> yeah, we, we said that for seven or eight years, just trying to tell PR agencies and very, very slow to just understand that. And like I said, just put the time for a low cost of entry, you know, that, it, that it was. I mean, um, there's so many guys I met through, you know, like Matt Uford for one was one of those guys where it was like, I had emailed with him and stuff, but we had never met. And, you know, he was definitely a, uh, a presence, you know, when we met and stuff like that. And we hit it off right away and went and got drinks. And turns out he went to the high school that was in my conference, you know, and it's just like in high school, it's like, it's crazy. It's insane. Kyle, um, it's, it seems like uh, Matt seems to be the most popular guy that comes up on every one of the shows, huh? He's, he's definitely one of the common links. I think people like he's the cool one and Jamie's the, uh, the attractive one. That seems to be like the two takeaways right now. You know, Matram's, Matram's timeless looks and offered as the guy you want to get a beer with category. So, But even like Pete, Pete Vasalka, like, I mean, I think, John, you actually connected me with him, you know, like later. Um, but we ended up doing, you know, like a Super Bowl thing with with Yard Barker down in Tampa, you know, like so, so many great relationships made, you know, through through this. Having having I'm curious, you know, one thing that we talked about, touched on at different points was those early days were, you know, blogging, I think in general was pretty wild west. But I think especially sports blog audiences and comment sections had a, you know, reputation. It was one of the sort of scarier areas to venture into, right. That you, you could really kind of get, get killed. I mean, from the, from the other side on the, the PR side was, were, were we as dangerous as some of the people in those rooms like to think we were, or, you know, what was the perception? I mean, I've got like, I mean, I don't know if I can say this, but I mean, I sent a Michael Vick story under embargo to AJ Delirio and he posted the damn thing that night. You know, and it was supposed to go live for another day or two. And it was like, that was it. I'll never, I had never picked him again. Shame on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I had worked with him before and I was like, you know, we're good. You know, and I assured my boss that we were good. And I assured my editor that we were good. But, you know, it's like. But yeah, yeah, we're, otherwise, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to get AJ. AJ's on our wish list. We'll have to bring that up with him. <laughs> otherwise, I mean, like, you know, I would say, you know, there was certainly like, are they going to play by the same rules? you know, like, or not, but it was, you know, whatever it was like, it was, but the interesting thing about guys like AJ and always say this about Leach, like they were writers first, right? Like guys like me were just hobbyists. So, you know, and Lang, you know, Lang talked about, 
you know, he was writing in a paper. He was going to school for, you know, to be a writer. Um, so I also think that, you know, remember when the, the whole Leach thing came up with uh, Buzz Bissinger, right? And I'm trying to think like, Leach is probably more like Buzz Bissinger than Leach is like, you know, kissing Susie Culver. You know, it's just well, like um, Bill Simmons, like a lot of similarities. Right, right. So, you know, th- these are guys that kind of came up in that training, but really took this new platform like by the horns and just ran with it to really carve a new path. It, it also strikes. So, you know, in the sort of looking at the career arc and something that you were talking about, the different different parts of Condé Nast that you were involved with. So you went from GQ, which, you know, wasn't all the way to full-blown Vogue in terms of something I think of as sitting on a coffee table, but was definitely more in that category of big glossy thing. And then Wired, which... I mean, I think the first banner ad ever, what ran on hotwire.com, like, you know, so it's always a hybrid and then, and then pitchfork suddenly falls under your purview. So you kind of come full circle now into something that entirely originated out of the internet. Um, so, you know, talk maybe a little bit about that. And, and certainly I, part of the reason I brought it up was thinking about one of the, what felt like one of the scarier, still probably one of the scarier places for a, a music PR person to go pitch is Pitchfork. Like you went into the ultimate place that'll just rip you apart if they don't they don't buy what you're selling. Yeah, no, I mean, Pitchfork was one of those brands where when they were uh, acquired by Condé Nast, I was just like, who's gonna do, who gets to work on that? Like as a fan, you know, and as a guy who's from, you know, the Midwest and from Chicago and, you know, having been to Pitchfork Fest when I lived in Chicago and I was just like, oh my God, yeah, Condé nailed it. Like, awesome move you know like and um is this around the time they bought reddit as well because didn't reddit was before before okay sorry (laughs) um and shared a space with wired out in san francisco um but um but yeah and you know pitchfork was one of those where it was just like i just raised my hand for it and they didn't have anybody doing pr and i was able to take it on along with wired and um immediately struck up a you know um a great friendship and relationship with Chris Caskey, who was the president there and, and Ryan Schreiber. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it was very different, you know, uh, from those other titles and how we approach it from a PR standpoint. I mean, a lot of it was around the festival. Um, it still is, um, less about, you know, sort of, you know, breaking news or, you know, like, um, so much of, you know, Pitchfork's audience comes in through the, the, the homepage and they have a dedicated, you know, loyal audience and stuff like that. So just a different approach, but, um, but yeah, I mean, great, great brand to work on. As a PR guide, how did your role change as social media became more prevalent and individuals became more their self own self promoters and, and self brands? Um, you know, being able to kind of force stuff out on different feeds and such. Um, I mean, it certainly changed. I mean, I don't think that like necessarily stop doing what we were normally doing and we would more build in sort of a social media approach to like whatever it was we were doing. So it's like now when we're, you know, got a, a cover launch or something like that, you know, part of that conversation with the publicist is, you know, what are, what is talent going to do when, when, you know, something drops and um, to help elevate that story or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, certainly I think it takes, takes took some of the load off of like what PR was designed to do. Cause in the early days when I was reaching out to you or reaching out to whoever, you know, a lot of that was to drive people back to the site, drive traffic. You know, it was very much like, would love you to do this here. Are what the requirements to use the photo, you have to link back, you have to do this, you have to do that. don't do any of that anymore. You know I mean? It's kind of like, we want to get stories. So people are talking about what we're doing, but like, we're not looking at it as a huge source of like driving back traffic. 
Um, yeah, I think Jamie always talked about that being content distribution and distributed content, right? And, the, and there is a difference, right? It doesn't matter where they're reading it. Like you pitch the Yahoo homepage, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, we got to get a placement on the Yahoo homepage. I mean, I guess Drudge is still kind of like that now, you know, like you, you try to hopefully get something on the Drudge homepage. But like, yeah, I mean, so social takes care of a lot of that for you. And so in the PR team and on the communications team, um, did the the social teams uh, work under use of the people that had the the pitchfork handles and the uh, the wired handles? Was that all coordinated with sort no, of your, your ops or more editorial? So when it initially, like early, early days, um, I, I think the GQ Instagram was like under PR or something like that. Like, I mean, it was very sort of like a hybrid model, like social reported into PR and the website. It was sort of like a dotted line. Um, but now I think, I think in all the titles, social is, is, um, is editorial. You know, I mean, it's very important that it, it has that editorial voice. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, their, uh, the PR team will have their own, you know, Twitter handle and stuff like that to push out press releases and things like that. But it's very transparent. Like, this is what this is. Does the, does the, to what extent, you know, you used to have a handful or however, you know, you had an increasingly large set of people who might be the way your story gets amplified and reaches the right audiences. Mm-hmm. And how has that, you know, like you talked about the sort of the relationships you have to maintain. It feels like now you might have to maintain, I don't know, 10x what you used to to kind of get to scale. Maybe some people, if they're lucky, know, but like you might have to cobble it together with a bunch of people with 50,000 person followings instead of larger publications. How, how is that? Am I overstating that? Is that accurate or how it's changed? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's certainly evolved. Right. And it's, it's really hard to even like grasp. And unless you were like involved in real time, like it sounds like very daunting, but like, you know, looking back, it was like, man, we had four people doing PR for just a magazine. There was no website. There was no social media. There was no, you know, like, various platforms that we've, you know, the iPad version or, you know, whatever, like, you know, we've rolled out over time and uh, it was busy, you know, it was so busy. And now I just feel like it's, um, it's more, it's more just prioritizing, you know, like, what are we, what is, what are we trying to achieve with this versus like spending so much time on every little story um, from the magazine, you know, now it's very, it's, it's the sites are, are pushing out stories, uh, 30, 40 stories, you know, sometimes a day, it's like, you know, you're turning out media alerts real quick, just kind of pushing out news as it happens. Um, if that kind of answers your question. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> what were some of your uh, more memorable or more viral stories in your time, particularly with GQ and the sports space? Were there any particular subjects that really hit it off well and was a great connection? Yeah, there was with- like a Duck Dynasty profile that was... <laughs> <laughs> all sorts of traffic records oh, in the, on the gq side on the gq side yeah. yeah um seems i couldn't think of a more natural fit <laughs> which if i'm not mistaken rga may have been working on the social activation for the show so i think that may have been like in our case study video a screenshot of that that profile so oh, it was yeah it was, that it, was way. Nuts. it was nuts that was a big one for sure gq i mean i don't know there were so so many um, you know, big covers and stuff like that, like over, over the years. Um, but that was towards the end of my tenure. So I remember that one. What athlete do you think most exemplifies the, the GQ spirit? Jeez. I mean, now probably LeBron, 
like, I mean, he's probably had the most covers. I mean, Kobe certainly, you know, was a GQ guy for sure. I mean, I, I feel like it's an NBA guy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That would, I remember we did the, the, um, the greatest athletes of all time, you know, uh, covers and, um, with, you know, old, you know, pickup of Muhammad Ali and Jordan and stuff like that. And, um, Tom Brady, you know, obviously like he's been on the cover a bunch of times. Um, those are stylish guys. Yeah. But LeBron and, and Kobe seem more like, you know, goat conversation in terms of, you know, iconic in their sport. Were there any guys that won't necessarily go down as being iconic in their sport, but, you know, really held their own on that sort of style side of it? You know, I'd like a West, I don't know, Westbrook or like a Harden, like a, a guy like that. I mean, you know, one that comes to mind and like, and this is like, he's super iconic already, but like at the time he wasn't, he was a rookie. It was the Bryce Harper profile that Willie wrote for GQ. And he's um, got a baseball in his mouth. I mean, it's one of the coolest photos. Um, Ranks right up there with Keith Hernandez and his Cosby sweater, (laughs) if I recall. (laughs) Nice. Um, Yeah. Very cool. And, and so kind of, again, talk about coming full circle, you go as, as lowbrow as blogs of balls, and then, you know, finally winding up in your, in your Conde tenure with, uh, with Vanity Fair. Um, I can't think of anything more highbrow than that. Um, what's the, what's the state of the industry look like? How did these legacy brands like GQ and and Vanity Fair specifically putting wired and, and pitchfork aside? Um, you know, what do you see as their outlook for them? Where do they go from here? I mean, I think it's, it's bright. Like, you know, I think it's, it's all about like constantly, um, you know, evolving and changing and, and, um, um, you know, obviously the, the websites are super important now and, um, in terms of driving subscriptions, um, and so much of the conversation lives there, you know, I mean, I think that the, the cover is always something that is, you know, going to be a conversation starter. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's so much about like, you know, that, that daily visitor on the site. Um, and, and just, um, so is that the new subscriber? I mean, you said subscriptions, I mean, are they literally talking about physical subscriptions or is it? Physical subscriptions, yeah. Okay. That's, that's still a priority, not say UVPMs. Um, yeah, I mean, right now, like so much of, um, you know, what is old is new again. And, you know, like, um, driving that, that digital subscriber is super important. Yeah. God bless the, uh, the iPad. Cause I remember when you guys first got on there, I think I was reading most of my, and I think that came with your subscription too. You also had the complimentary, the complimentary digital. Um, what's next for Corey Wilson, uh, you know, focus on family. You've talked to me for years about wanting to get back to the Midwest and in an ideal world, I know you'd probably want to do PR for the Cardinals, but you know, what do you got your sights on coming? I love coming up. I, I know you would. Um, <laughs> You know what? I, it, like, I, I don't know right now. I mean, just taking some time and, 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 uh, enjoying my family. Um, and I think I'm, I'm, I'll be on the East coast, honestly, like as much as I love the Midwest and I, you know, I had talked about going back to Chicago at some point, like we've, you know, we're in New Jersey now and it's great. Love New Jersey. <laughs> the Jersey contingent is strong around here. Um, thinking about it from, uh, you know, the, the, 27 year old you who's out there now and who's, you know, trying to make change, trying to help at a, maybe, you know, maybe it is a similar situation, a legacy publication or anybody who's out there fighting to connect with a new audience. Like where would, what 
what basement, what convention, what group would you be knocking on doors and talking to today? That's sort of the untapped next audience for, you know, to, to be, I mean, you guys have talked a lot about like Substack. I mean, obviously like, I, I feel like that is certainly like, you know, a super interesting trend and, and where a lot of great writers are going now. And, you know, like I try to support as many of the writers and, you know, newsletters that uh, I'm, I'm into right now. And I think that like, you know, people are certainly um, more, you know, open to it. And it's, it's, it's certainly like, um, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like, sorry, that's not a great answer, but I just, um, you know, I feel like that's sort of like where discovery is happening now. Right. No, I, I mean, I think we, we see a lot of that, uh, obviously podcasts remain a, you know, a thing. I, the one I was interested in last night that I'm seeing more and more of, you know, at least at the top tier publications, but have you seen where you know, the New York times and others will have the sort of like, yeah, just have somebody read this article to you. And it's, it's kind of like a podcast, but it's just kind of like a book on tape and it's all in one. And I, you know, wonder how much, how separate, and then there's a lot of podcasts that are transcribed and you can find that. Like, I, I wonder how much they'll stay separate in the future. How much they all just kind of become media that you can consume in the format you want, but that lives in all those ways. No, it's all super interesting. Yeah. It's um, and then, and then that doesn't even get into some of the, the virtual world side, right. That the, the uh, I, do I keep, t- did I tout this stat on the last one, the among us stat that I just can't stop that there's a, you know, a game out there that's got, 500 million monthly unique users and and four people are the employees who are running the company that runs that game. So it is an exciting <laughs> time of media upheaval and transformation for, for all of us. We'll see if we've got one more, one more wave of disruption in all of us guys. So how did 27 year old Corey not uh, throw his hat into the uh, GQ.com uh, blogging ring back in the day? Say, so, yeah, I got this. Like, you know, I, I got a little experience in this. Let me see what I can do. I did. I did. I, I interviewed Ozzy Smith on my way out. All right. <laughs> beats <laughs> Ozzy Canseco. What's that? <laughs> so it beats Ozzy Canseco. <laughs> he was at a Cardinal, wasn't he? Yeah, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think all of these things were brief. Like, <laughs> there when McGuire was there too, which was very weird. <laughs> nice. Um, so the trajectory that you did take, I mean, any regrets of not being that beat writer or being a features writer? No regrets, man. All right. Very good. Well, Corey, uh, thank you again, again, um, without you. And I think without the support, I think you really gave us legitimacy to be quite frank. Every time I tell some of the partnerships that we have, GQ is always among the first that Kyle and I always mention. Um, because again, I think that you talk about that mutual, mutual beneficial relationship that we had. We certainly saw that and the credibility, but also appreciate the fact that you trusted us and then trusted us more and kept coming back. Um, any fond memories of whether thank you, know, you. Any, good, good partners find memories of Vegas or or New York or or anywhere that uh you know any everybody always talks about oh, Chicago yeah. when you know the when this was I forget which blogs of balls or how this we got involved but we got a tour of like MLB Network yeah that was the first one I got part. my I didn't I got to shake Harold Reynolds' hand and my then probably year old kid got got to hug Harold Reynolds. So um, <laughs> that was quite an experience. The reason that, that I remember that is he was throwing like BP to us and I took one over the left field wall there on like the third pitch. And I was like, that's it. Um, <laughs> I just hit the whiffle ball off of, off of Harold Reynolds. I'm, I'm, 
I'm retiring. Very cool. Well, Corey, thank you again for your perspective. Um, you know, we're trying to get different voices and different memories back and uh, certainly fond memories with you. So thanks a lot, Corey. Yeah, right. Thanks, Corey. Uh, that was fun. Until next week, I'm Don Pobia. That's Kyle Bunch, Corey Wilson, Condé Nast, GQ, Chicago Tribune, all things PR. Uh, look them up. We'll throw the socials on there. We'll see you next week. Later, guys. Bye.